A pastor loved by so many, an integrated church in a time when racial segregation was still very much a big thing, building nursing homes, contributing to loads of charities, and only asking for all of his followers to leave the world better than when they found it. Sounds like such an amazing person, right? But if he was, he wouldn't be on my channel. Welcome back to Dark, Dangerous, and Deadly. I'm your host, Bridget Moreau, and with me today is my husband, Alberto. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And we're going to tell you the story of Jim Jones. On May 13th of 1931, James Thurman Jones and Lynette Putnam Jones gave birth to a baby boy named James Warren Jones. Now, his dad was a veteran, but he was a victim of mustard gas. So he was completely disabled and he wasn't able to work, which meant that the mom had to become the breadwinner. She was always working and the father was like an alcoholic, didn't really give him much time. So he was kind of on his own. So the mom and dad wind up separating and Jim Jones winds up moving in with his mom. And the same thing continues. She's always working, so she doesn't really have time for him. So he winds up becoming friends with a neighbor. And the neighbor is an older woman. She's part of a church, and she starts bringing Jim Jones to church with her. And he becomes absolutely infatuated. He not like so much was infatuated with the religion itself, but more so of the power that he could see coming from this pastor the pastor like really got the the church moving and people were so in love with the pastor and jones looked at him and kind of like just wanted to be him wanted for so many people to love him and wanted to have like that control over people so now going to this church made him curious about religion itself and those that were in charge of said religion. So he would hop around from church to church. And this was like Indiana. This is where he was living at the time. So he tried like Methodist church and apostolic, apostolic churches, um, Nazareth churches and Quaker? I don't even know what that is. But he would just jump from church to church to see how these people practice their religion and what this pastor or priest that was in charge of the religion would do. So he was doing his research on different types of religion and what they work on? Yeah, pretty much. He pretty much was just interested basically in, like I said, like the whole power play. He saw these religious figures and how they could, you know, like move these people spiritually. And it was really interesting for him. So, yeah, I guess he was just kind of doing his own research on what he planned to do later. He winds up, um, so this is when he was young and I don't know exactly how young but I'm assuming young enough to be in like grade school but if like an animal died in the neighborhood 
he would perform like a a funeral for the animal and he would like call over like other kids in the neighborhood to like be witnesses of this elaborate funeral for the animal and this is what he started doing he also started like preaching in the churches and you know obviously the churchgoers just thought that he was amazing he's this young kid super into religion coming from a background of you know a mother who is not religious at all and she was like not into this she was just not even taking part in any of what he was doing he was just doing this all on his own or you know with the kids in the neighborhood now speaking of the kids in the neighborhood this is just something that I, I wanted to mention because it just shows the type of character that he had so he would invite these kids over right for these little funerals and stuff or whatever and when it was time for these kids to go home he would like literally not allow them to leave so he was showing signs early on yeah like possessiveness like he would try to keep them there like forcefully keep them there and there was like one time someone was talking like a childhood friend was interviewed and they were talking about him and they said that he actually had like a bb gun and when the kid tried to leave he threatened to like shoot the kid and shot like something that was on the side of the kid like didn't he actually shoot the kid what, but like shot like shot? yeah and like so some people said that it was a real gun but all the other sources that i found said that it was like a bb gun and so he tried to like i don't know if he was trying to shoot the kid and missed or if he was just kind of showing him what he's capable of but that was all because the kid wanted to go home. So that just goes to show you the kind of person that he is. But, I mean, even when people knew this about him and knew how possessive he was and how he had such a problem with people leaving, people still gravitated to him. Um, so he winds up staying with this whole, like, church passion all throughout high school and into college but he actually winds up like studying like nursing and medicine while he's in college and he becomes an orderly now what's an orderly that's basically someone that like cleans up in the hospital and like does little things like that well, like a nurse no, a nurse doesn't clean up. A nurse actually does medical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so he winds up, like, you know, changing diapers and cleaning the old people off. and Like all. a nurse? No, nurses don't do that. Yes, they do. I mean, not like, that's not their only job. Anyway, so that's what he winds up doing. And he winds up finding his wife there his wife was a nurse his wife was i guess an orderly ah. like him 
so his wife was Marceline Baldwin and they got married in 1949 so now while he was working as an orderly this is just a little side note everyone loved him like they all thought that he was amazing amazing about what just his personality he like literally enjoyed every bit of what he was doing no matter how nasty the job was he enjoyed it isn't that kind of odd well i mean i guess any normal person would think that that's (laughs) odd but everyone else was just like he really likes his job so yeah so he was like he just had like this charisma about him and he just drew people to him. People, everyone that he came in contact with loved him. So in 1952, Jones served as a student pastor in the Methodist Church. But then by 1956, he decided to create his own church, which would become the People's Church. And they were uh, joined, they joined the Disciples of Christ in 1960. And then by 1964, Jones was ordained as a minister. What's ordained? That just means that he was, like, officially became a minister. Basically, he could do things like marry people and, you know, stuff like that. We'll return to the story in just a second. Let's just take a moment to listen to a word from our sponsor. Jones was so-called disgusted by the way the people of the black community were being treated that he became an advocate. By opening his own church, he was able to allow people of all colors to worship together. To ensure that everyone would make an effort to get along, he would often sit people black, white, black, white. He encouraged everyone to give hugs to each other, you know, like that whole hug thy neighbor and you get up and hug the person next to you. That's, That's what he did. (laughs) they would hug each other (laughs) so and if any white person said anything that he thought was hateful he would embarrass them in front of the entire church and then make them leave Uh, he was such a big advocate for the black community that he would actually later receive a Martin Luther King Jr. humanitarian award while raising money selling monkeys he was able to purchase his own church Wait, wait, wait he was selling monkeys yeah, he would import these little monkeys right here. You see the picture? Yeah. And they're cute little monkeys. I don't know what kind of monkeys those are, but they're adorable. And he would basically go door to door selling monkeys. So he imported some monkeys and then he bred them and then he would sell them. And that's how he was able to get up money to be able to purchase the church. Huh. Okay. You want one, right? Of course. I want a pygmy. You want a Jim Jones monkey? No. (laughs) Meanwhile, he was appointed director of Human Rights Commission. He used this position to racially integrate churches, theaters, companies, universities, and even restaurants. Now, what's Human Rights Commission? It's basically a group that's set up to protect human rights. So, meaning that... Um, to protect the rights of the black community. You know, they were being shunned and they weren't allowed to go and do a lot of different things. And this commission was put into place to make sure that 
you know, integration could happen and they would be granted the same rights that anyone else had. Hmm. Interesting. So he and his followers would go to different establishments um, and they would tell them that if they allowed black people to attend, uh, then they could promise to help said company make a lot of money by bringing in a ton of business. Um, so basically, like, they were kind of working out a deal with them. So they would, like, say they went into a restaurant, and they would tell the restaurant owner, if you allow your business to become an integrated restaurant where blacks and whites can dine together, I can promise you, myself and my followers will come here and we'll bring you a lot of business and you'll make a lot of money. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was a good way. Like, it was like a one hand washes the other kind of thing. You do something good for the community and we'll do something good for your business. Um, so most companies agreed to this and those that didn't would soon choose to after seeing that jo- Jones, in fact, kept true to his word. Integrated businesses began to thrive and business was booming. So, and that was, that started once they became integrated. So now businesses that didn't want to take part in this, now all of a sudden wanted to take part in this because they saw that they were losing out on a lot of money. Uh, So he was quite a busy guy. So much so that he actually collapsed one day of exhaustion and he was hospitalized. Then he was placed um, on the black side of the hospital quote-unquote, accidentally. And I think that this was done purposely because he was such a big advocate for the black community. And I think it was the the white doctors and the white staff that kind of wanted... shunned him? Yeah. So it was kind of like, well, you, you know, you want to, you know, support the blacks, so you, you stay on the black side. And so, but he was fine with that. Like, these were his people. This is so, I mean... They were what they, I think what they intended to do is not what actually happened. So he winds up, like, you know, feeling better, obviously. And he starts helping taking care of the black patients, including, like, helping wash them and emptying out their bedpans. That's, um, that's disgusting. I mean, but he wasn't orderly <laughs> before. Well, so to him, it's not really that's that a, big of a deal. It's a normal but thing. it was, I think, more it was to like a slap in the face to the people that put him there you know to show yeah, like it's not gonna bother me not only do i am i not bothered by it but i'm pleased that you put me here because now i'm going to help them oh, i see you know um so this along with what he called his rainbow family now what's a rainbow family well so what he started doing was he started adopting children of different cultures so he had like an Asian child. He um, adopted the very first, like he was the very first black um, white family to adopt a black child, and what well, like legally? Yeah. And this black child that he adopted, he actually renamed um, Jim Jones. So this was his son, like Jim Jones Jr. Oh wow. Yeah. So. His, uh, after seeing all of this and all the stuff that he was doing for the black community, his following really began to grow. Well, obviously, he made the commitment to uh, adopt a black child yeah. and name him after himself. It, now, this is a side note, but he actually, like, they, there was an interview with his son later on, 
And his son says that, like, he always referred to him, like, Jim Jones always referred to Jim Jones Jr. as his little black adopted son. Now that's mean. Yeah, it definitely wasn't because he, like, again, he didn't actually love these people. He he didn't care about his followers or anything like that. He just loved the power play of it all. So he didn't adopt a black kid because he thought, you know, he really loved him and, and he thought he could better his life or whatever the situation is. He did it for the appearance. So it's like one of his power plays. Mm-hmm. This is how he was able to get more and more people to follow him. So now, you already know, a lot of people in the community were not happy about Jones' advocacy. And uh, he began to receive death threats. People would spit on his wife when they saw her out in public with her, with her, you know, rainbow family. Oh, no. I would have beat their ass. Yeah, so she would be going into the church, like, with her kids, and there would be, like, people outside, like, protesting and stuff, and they would, like, spit on her and the kids just because it was all integrated. Like, that's how the the whole, like, hatred was so strong back then. I mean, not only back then, but pretty much it was much stronger back then than it is now. Also, some people would even try to physically assault white churchgoers for simply not hating the other black churchgoers. So if you, like in your job, if they found out that you were part of people's temple, they would try to like find a way to like get rid of you and stuff like that. Like it was a really big issue back then because again, this was one of the very first churches, um, not the first church, but one of the first churches to have an integrated um, following. So there was a lot of hatred for that, and people did not want that. They still wanted that whole separate but equal thing. But anyhow, all of this just made Jones push even harder. Together, he and his followers were determined to show the world that they were the example of how great the country could be if color wasn't an issue. They opened up soup kitchens and retirement homes, and the retirement homes had, like, the best of everything. Um, he also would financially support uh, any legal situations, hospital visits, treatments, and medications that any of his members needed. Now, my concern is... Where did he get this money to do all this? Well, that's the thing. He had his followers hand over their checks, uh, like, you know, their working checks, um, any properties, assets, whatever they had. He was a socialist. So basically, he acted like he was the government, and people would hand over all of the money, and then he would distribute it to whoever he felt needed it the most at the time. Wait, so you're saying if I'm working... And I'm busting my butt. I give my check to you, and you give it to whoever you want, whoever you think it's... Yeah. And and it wasn't only that. Like, so he convinced a lot of, like, the, the old elderly that became part of the church. He convinced them that he, they could sign over their houses and their property and all those things, and he would take care of them. But the crazy thing is he did take care of them. 
So he was getting all of this money. And, like, I know a lot of people will probably think, like, he was, you know, he was one of those, like, TV priests, you know, that they tell you to do all this stuff and then they use your money for, like, a fucking, you know, $20 billion mansion. But he didn't do any of those things. He had a very modest house. He didn't use any of that money for himself. So he did put it back into... The community? Yeah, well, not only just the community, but mainly his followers. So that's why they didn't feel, like, as if they were being, like, robbed of anything. Because he was still giving them money, but only for the things that he felt that they needed. Uh. Mm Mm-hmm. So they were okay with it. Uh, They all worked together, and they followed, like, his every word. Soon, they would go to California, and this is when Jones begins to change. We'll return to the story in just a second. Let's just take a moment to listen to a word from our sponsor. Jones began to use a cocktail of different drugs, some to help him wake up, some to help him sleep. He began to show aggression, often making followers fistfight when they quote-unquote sinned. Even through the changes, people stood by him, They had seen him devote his life to helping the forgotten. Uh, He gave selflessly, and they even saw him heal people right before their eyes. Now, what do you mean by heal them right before their eyes? Yeah, so he would plant people amongst his followers, and then he'd, quote-unquote, randomly choose a person to heal. There was one that was pretty insane for the people that witnessed it. He had one of his secretaries in disguise and she was like in a wheelchair and she would go to the services all the time. So they all knew her. He randomly picks her out of the audience and he pretends to like take her sickness and like put it onto himself. (laughs) So he commands her to get up from the wheelchair and to walk and then she does and she's like struggling she's leaning on the people that are trying to help her and she takes one step and everyone's cheering for her and then she takes another step and then soon she starts like running through the aisles like waving her hands in the air and people are just shocked by this so he's just staging all this stuff Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he was doing. And this isn't the only one. Like, this was just one of the ones that was, like, the biggest shock for them. But there was, like, people that said, like, that they had arthritis in their hands and they couldn't move their hands. And then he would pretend to, like, take their sickness and, like, wave his hands in the air and poof, the sickness, whatever their ailment went into him and he would act like oh my gosh oh i'm i'm so sick now and look i healed this person and people believed it they like ate it up like nothing so seeing all of this his followers began to treat him like he was a god they began to work non-stop for the church uh often not getting any sleep for days on end jones would also be up for days drugged up sometimes and getting more demanding, violent, and cruel. Followers began to talk and realizing that they were actually experiencing all the same things with him, and it was kept a big secret. Now, what were the followers 
follower is experiencing? Well, that's the thing. Both men and women started realizing that they were all having sexual relationships with Jones. What? Yes. Oh, but this is the thing, though, is that during this time of him sleeping with his followers, he would tell them that he was doing it for them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, and he had them working like crazy, so their families wouldn't even see each other. Husbands and wives would not even see each other. And he kept telling them that it wasn't good for the church or for them to even have sex together. But it was completely okay for him to have sex with all of them. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I know. The churchgoers weren't really allowed to conversate anymore after that. And I don't know if it was because of that, but I know that they definitely were not allowed to conversate. No friendships or anything like that, even though he wanted them to all treat each other like brother and sister, which makes no sense. He just wanted everyone for himself. Yeah, he didn't want anyone to have anyone else to lean on but him. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but they all started calling him father, but not like priest father. They called him father like as if like like Your a dad. dad. Yeah. So that's like it's just yeah, he he that's just That's even more creepy. I know, right? And he's sleeping with them. Yeah. So he's having sex. I guess it's like someone calling their boyfriend or husband daddy. Mm. <laughs> Pretty much the same thing. <laughs> oh, father. <laughs> so he knew that they worshiped him and he began to like push, you know, push a little bit harder. And he started, like, these paranoid sermons, uh, which are, like, where his little preaching things. And he was ranting and raving about nuclear war and how they, whoever was going to come to war with America, they would never take him alive. And he suggested uh, to everyone to choose suicide over capture. So you would think that that would stick out to people. Here's yeah, this, this. That's another sign right there. Yeah, like red flags. But no, they, they didn't see anything wrong with it. He starts to talk about uh, a list of places that Esquire magazine had named at the time of best places to survive a nuclear attack. And this is where South America begins to, you know, come into his sights. Uh, but he needed to test the loyalties of those that are going to that he's going to take along with him. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, he brings in some juice and asks everyone to have a drink. Everyone in the church does, and then when they do that, he says, "You guys all drank poison, and you're all gonna die." Oh, you gotta be nuts! I would have left right there. <laughs> right? You would think so, especially like as a parent. So some of these people are going crazy. Some people are just sitting there like in sh like complete shock. And then you have like mothers and fathers that are like hugging their kids and they're crying because they know that their kids just drank this juice and they're going to die. And once it's like complete chaos inside the church, he's like, I'm just kidding. It was just a little ploy to let me see who was going to be loyal to me. Uh, he's a lunatic. But then at the same time, like, why would you not leave? Yeah. And some people did leave. But the rest of the people stayed. And just, 
as like a you know like I said as as a parent that just baffles me like someone just pretended that your kid was about to die in your arms from being poisoned and you're like I love him <laughs> I just they must be sick in the head themselves too that's and that's that's definitely something we're going to touch on later but yeah in 1973, just two years after being in California, the first group accompanies Jones to Guyana. And it was about 20 people, I think, with him. They went over to Guyana to take a look around and I guess see if that's really where they wanted to go. And by 1974, the 27,000 acres of jungle would be purchased. How much? 27,000 acres. Now, where's this Guyana place located? Guyana is in South America, right next to Venezuela. So he's going south. Yeah. But this this is the thing is, like, I don't see where they don't see. Like, he's taking us from American soil and he's bringing us, you know, to a third world country. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> to, and but the, like you know, so people went there. Like there was like twenty people, like I said, that went there to go check it out with him. And it's literally like I'm, I'm gonna bring up pictures later, and I'll and I'll share them on the Facebook page. But it's literally in the middle of the jungle. Like you land the the plane, you land. I think you land in Georgetown, which is like right outside of where the soon to be Jonestown would be. So the plane would land there, and then you would have to get on, like, a truck and drive all the way in to the jungle. And then you would see, like, this little sign that says, like, Welcome to Jonestown. So he's trying to go as far away from the U.S. government as possible. Yeah, and far away from all society. And law. And 27,000 acres? That's a lot of land. That's a lot. Next week, we'll talk about Guyana and all the events there. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Have a good night. And see you next week.